Well, hello, Heritage. How you doing? Doing good? Hey, good to see you. I'm so glad that you're here. I want to say hello and greetings to our entire network. Guys of Kiwani, I just want to continue to echo what other communicators have said. Thank you for your contribution uh, of artwork to the series. It, is, it has been such a rich uh, addition to the things that we're talking about. And I was actually looking at the two paintings that were created for today's topic, and it just beautifully uh, echoes where we're going today. So thank you for that, men of Kiwani. People at Bettendorf, I am so glad that you're here as well. I had a chance to get over to your campus this week and had an outdoor meeting on your patio, and it was just awesome. Uh, people online, thank you for checking us out. And of course, those of you here at Rock Island, so glad to see you, so glad that you're plugging in, and I'm excited to see what the Lord has for us today. My name is Josh. I get to serve as the assistant campus pastor here at the Rock Island campus, and uh, I love that even though we are spread out all over the place uh, across the cities, that we are one big, beautiful tribe of believers. I love Heritage Church, and I love that I get to spend time with you. So I just want to say thank you for being here. Hopefully you've had a great summer. I know summer break has kind of ended for some people, and it's going to end this week for others, and it's going to end next week for others. I know it's kind of winding down, but hopefully you've had a good summer. Uh, my family, it's been really busy. My son had baseball early on. My daughter went on a mission trip through Heritage. We tried to do a yard sale and got rained on on Thursday, and it was the first time it had rained in a long time. So what are the odds? And we just got back from a trip a road trip to South Carolina. It was my family of four, and we spent 36 hours in the car together. So there's that. Uh, we didn't kill each other. Um, that was good, and we made it back safe. But uh, on the way, we made a pit stop, and this was probably my favorite picture of, uh, of our trip. We made a pit stop in St. Louis and saw well, it wasn't really a game, it was a beating, and the Cardinals were at the bad end of that, but uh, it was a good memory anyway, and we just had a good time together. And when we got back into town, my first day back in the office, I come up to Rock Island campus, I go upstairs to my office, I open the door, and this is what I see. Yeah, 140. They, they made sure that I knew how many. Um, and they were all st stuffed around the desk. I'll roll back and pop one, and it just scares me, and it's bad. Uh, but then I noticed something else that happened. Some, some defacing of property happened. And this, this happened all over my office. I have several different cardinal things in there. They were all turned upside down or turned around facing the, facing the wall or whatever. And I'm still kicking through balloons, and I just actually kicked through there today, and I saw a white balloon with green lettering. I'd never seen this before, but it said, Go Cubs on it. So I'm still finding stuff. And uh, just in case you're wondering who did this, this was written on my whiteboard, sponsored by the Cubs. So. <clears throat> So here we go. Representatives from the evil empire came and left gifts in my office, all right? So here's the deal. Uh, what the perpetrators didn't know was going to happen, and maybe this is the best part of the story, is my first day back in the office, I actually was at Bridgepoint most of the day for meetings, came back here in the afternoon because I was meeting four out-of-town guests who wanted a tour of the building, and one of them was a denominational official. They were all Cub fans, and I was like getting ready to go into my office and show them like, oh, you know, this is great, great Cardinal stuff. And no, they saw, they saw all this, and they just laughed at me, you know. So 
anyway, I tried, but uh, it's all good. And uh, I think I'm glad to be back. And uh, I am so excited about the series that we continue to plug into. We, we've been in a summer long series on the parables, uh, the parables of Jesus. We've been centered, our, we've been centering our attention in the gospel of Luke. And these stories are so rich and so beautiful because Jesus was such a good storyteller. And, uh, and today's story, is, it's, it's going to be great as well. But before we get to the actual passage, uh, just in case this is the first time that you're plugging in with us this summer, or maybe you've been gone or, or you're a first-time guest with us today, I want to just kind of bring us up to speed on what our definition of parable is. So let me put this up for you. A, a parable is a simple story with a spiritual truth. Now, last week, Beth, and I think rightfully so, added two words to this that I think really, really helped. And what she said was that it's a seemingly simple story with a layered spiritual truth. And I, I thought that was a good addition because as has been the case several times this summer, we'll read the, the passage, we'll read the parable, and at the surface level, we think it's going one direction. And then we, we unpack it, we dig underneath of it, and we realize, oh, there's a lot of other things that are going on. That shouldn't be surprising to us because Jesus was such a good storyteller and st good storytellers are able to weave multiple threads together to give the story texture and depth. And, and I want you to know that today's story is no different. If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 16, and we're going to be looking specifically at verses 19 through 31. Luke chapter 16 Verses 19 through 31. Now, this parable is it's longer, and uh, it's been traditionally called the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And just so we get the whole thing in front of us, right up front, I want to read the entirety of it over us, but I just want to give kind of warning. It is longer than what we're used to reading at one time, so just hang with me because, because I, I think God has some important things to communicate to us today. This is Jesus speaking, Jesus giving the parable. And he says this, there was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen and who lived each day in luxury. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. And as Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. Finally, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to sit beside Abraham in the heavenly banquet. The rich man also died and was buried, and he went to the place of the dead. There in torment, he saw Abraham in the far side, in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. So the rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to, to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am in anguish in these flames. But Abraham said to him, son, Remember that during your lifetime, you had everything you wanted, and Lazarus had nothing. So now he is here being comforted, and you are in anguish. And besides, there is a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over to you from here, and no one can cross over to us from there. Then the rich man said, Please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's home, for I have five brothers, and I... I want him to warn them so they don't end up in this place of torment. But Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them. Your brothers can read what they wrote. The rich man replied, no, Father Abraham, 
But if someone is sent to them from the dead, then they will repent of their sins and turn to God. But Abraham said, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. And there we have it. It's a mysterious, textured story given by Jesus. And I feel like maybe I need to frame something that Pastor Beth actually framed similarly last week for her parable. When we, I just need to admit up front, there are so many different angles and so many different threads that you can pull uh, in this parable. And there's no way that we're going to be able to hit all of those threads. In fact, there's going to be probably some people who leave here wishing that I had hit or pulled certain threads with certain questions, but I'm just trusting that the Holy Spirit will lead us collectively as a tribe to the truths that he needs us to hear today. Now, right away, I think we should understand that Jesus uses a story beat here that is fairly common to uh, the stories of his day. He uses a surprise twist to uh, unveil a reversal of fortune, right? We see that really right up front in this parable. It, he uses this, this twist uh, in verse 22 to reveal this, this change of fortune, and he, he really does set all of this up beautifully. It, it actually vaguely reminds me of a, a modern-day story that you probably interacted with as a kid. I know I heard it as a kid, but the, the story is like the, the tortoise and the hare, where you know everything at the beginning of the story sets up the rabbit to win the race. He's fast. He's much faster than the tortoise. He's much faster than this turtle. And, and then as the story goes, it's kind of a slow kind of burn su surprise twist where the rabbit you know, overconfidence, distraction, whatever. He doesn't actually run the race straight through like the turtle does. And spoiler alert, the, to the, 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 turtle, the turtle wins the race. And, and it reminds me of, of this parable where everything in the first couple of verses, everything from verse 19 to 21 favors the rich man, this unnamed rich man. He's decked out in the nicest clothes, purple robes. He, he lives on an expansive estate that it's big enough that he has to have a gate where, this, where Lazarus is laying. He eats the best types of food. Every single one of his needs are met. And not only are they met, they're met in luxury and comfort. He's living a life that, that many in our world are actively pursuing. Now contrast him with Lazarus, the second character that Jesus introduces to us. And remember, Lazarus, in, in this case, he's a fictional character. He's part of a parable. So he's not the same person as the, the dude that Jesus rose from the grave in the Gospel of John. Maybe it's a playful name drop. They were friends. I don't know. I, I actually think Jesus uses the name Lazarus very intentionally, and we'll get to that a little bit later. But these first three verses, everything in the story goes against Lazarus. He clearly has none of the things that the rich man has. No home because he's laying outside the gates of the rich man. He's got no or minimal clothes because we read the, the dogs are licking open sores. He's got no food. That's well documented. He's very, very hungry and will just take table scraps. He's that desperate. Clearly his health is in jeopardy. Everything in the story is stacked against this individual. If you were to stop reading in verse 21 and try to predict who was going to have the Disney happy, happily ever after ending, you would say that it's the rich man in the purple robe who gets all of these things to eat. It's pretty clear 
who the winner is and who the loser is. The rich man, it turns out, is kind of like the rabbit, and the poor man is kind of like the turtle, because in verse 22, Jesus introduces the twist of the story, the reversal. And it turns out that the rich man was not actually in a position of strength, like many of us might have thought in those first three verses, where his final destination, he dies, and his final destination is to go to a place of torment called the place of the dead, or Hades. And it turns out that the poor man was lifted up out of his difficult existence and invited to a much better existence, to hang out with Abraham. It's actually been nicknamed Abraham's bosom, which is a paradise where, where Lazarus would never go hungry again. He was introduced to this great banquet. And at this point, I, I really do think that we can identify a central theme, a central point that Jesus is attempting to communicate through the great reversal. And I would sum it up by saying this, that the kingdom of God has a different value system. The kingdom of God has a different value system. We live in a fallen world. We live in a world that is skewed by sin. And because of this, Jesus knows that we need constant reminders of how he is ushering in a kingdom that's going to be different than the kingdoms that we've been exposed to in our lifetime on earth. The kingdom of God looks at power differently than we're used to. The kingdom of God looks at strength and weakness differently than we are used to. Kingdom of God looks at wealth and material management in a completely different way than we are used to uh, kind of looking at those things. And, and, and it's just, it's, we just need to understand the value system is different. Now, if you just take a quick look at Jesus's life, you see this in play. It, it, it's kind of a theme of his life where his followers over and over and over again want to sort of promote him or, or usher him to become king in order to set Israel free from Rome. He's, he's trying to kind of move, you know, his followers are trying to move him to a place of political power where, where the whole time Jesus is backing away from those opportunities and leveraging his strength in order to be a servant, in order to, to feed the masses, in, in order to preach, you know, kingdom stuff to, to his followers, in order to wash his disciples' feet ultimately in order to give his life on the cross for our sins, God gave up his life so that we might be lifted up. I, I've, I've heard it said that, I've heard it called the upside down way of God. But, but in reality, as I think about this, Jesus is, he is simply ushering in a kingdom that promotes the kind of wise and generous living that we humans were called to all the way back in the Garden of Eden. Jesus is actually calling us to return to our original design as human beings, to look at power and wealth and stewardship without the sinful lens that can distort those things so easily. And it's here that we begin to understand that Jesus is using that reversal in the story to be illustrative of our own need of a reversal in our own understanding of what God really values for us and what he values in us and through us. Our world has taught us to lift up and honor the successful and the attractive and the educated, that, that purple robes are better than open sores, that, that it's easier to be around the purple robes because it's cleaner, less messy, 
And yet, friends, over and over and over and over again in the scriptures, we see how God's heart is broken for those in this world who are hungry and oppressed and marginalized and broken and stepped on. And the call to us as people living under a kingdom dynamic is that we need to help lift up those who are brokenhearted and crushed by this world. And that frames a lot of where this parable goes. In fact, I, I, I mentioned there's a ton of things that you can pull from this parable, but I really want to pull two more things out, two more threads with you this morning. And there's going to be one attached to each of these guys that are introduced. I want to pull a thread with the rich man, and I want to pull a thread with Lazarus and consider a, less, a lesson from each perspective. For instance, I think a, a major lesson that can be learned from the rich man is to see that God will hold us accountable to our inaction. That God will hold us accountable to our inaction. Here's the really fascinating thing about the rich man. We actually don't see him in the story do anything overtly cruel to Lazarus. Jesus could have really uh, raised the bar of the villainy of the rich man, right? He could have said something like, yes, and this rich man passed by Lazarus every day and kicked him in the stomach and said, get off my lawn. You know, he could have done that. Or he could have said something even worse, like, yeah, Lazarus would take out a plate full of food, scrumptious, luxurious food, and just eat it slowly in front of Lazarus every single day. I mean, he could have really, really turned the the villainy uh, knob on high and really set us You know, like this guy is a really, really bad guy, but Jesus doesn't actually do that in the story. The problem here in the story and what the rich man really is guilty of is that he is not actually seeing Lazarus as even worthy of a mild spark of compassion. And while there may not be any overt signs of cruelty, look a little deeper into the story and dig underneath of it, and you you see signs of a significant, quiet, subtle cruelty. The the rich man probably passed Lazarus at least twice a day, one to go out from the gates, one to come back in. At least twice a day, he passed Lazarus, and it just never registered with the rich man to show compassion. The light bulb of empathy never went off in his soul. And the sin here, the sin that is worthy of condemnation, the sin is in action. The sin is not that that guy was rich. Please don't leave here. You know, you might have a a certain amount of funds in your bank account and you might be like, what's the level here of, of, you know, where I'm going to end up in eternity? That that is not the point of this passage. The the point of this passage is is to illustrate that inaction is, is a that is a sin. It is something that God will hold us accountable to. The sin here is, is seeing a need, having the means to meet that need, and then refusing to offer help or pretending that the need just isn't there to begin with. That's the sin that the rich man is actually being held accountable for. Now, listen, I know this sounds harsh. This sounds like a hard teaching, but then I kind of begin to to turn my attention to Jesus himself, the storyteller, the one telling this story and, and looking at his life and seeing that Jesus is not calling us 
to a life that he did not himself step into. The whole reason for his arrival in this world, the whole reason that he allowed himself to be wrapped up in human flesh is because he saw a need. He saw all of us who were oppressed by sin and he, he decisively acted on our behalf on the cross and in the empty tomb. God acted. God is a God of action. And because of that, we need to stay in step with him and, and we need to then take the mercy that was shown us and pass it along to others. We need to act with him. There's a Croatian writer and theologian who I have grown really fond of over the last year, just kind of reading some of his stuff. I'll probably butcher his name, but Miroslav Volf, uh, he, he writes a passage that I want to share with you. It's in your notes. It'll be on the screen that I just think beautifully echoes uh, what's going on in this passage. Listen to this. He says, there is something profoundly hypocritical about praising God for God's mighty deeds of salvation and cooperating at the same time with the demons of destruction, whether by neglecting to do good or actively doing evil. Interesting that he doesn't separate those two. And he goes on to say, without action in the world, the adoration of God is empty and hypocritical and degenerates into irresponsible and godless quietism. That is a phrase that I had never heard before. And it, it was striking to me and convicting to me. And here's my deep prayer for us as a tribe. It's, it's a prayer that, that I pray and, and I prayed this week as I thought about this parable that, that I would not be found and godless quietism, and, and that my heart would be so fully turned towards Jesus that I would just be filled up with his love, filled up with his empathy, filled up with his compassion, so that I may pass that along to each human soul that I encounter. My prayer for us is that our worship of the Lord would not ring hollow because we gather here but then leave these four walls and refuse to be stirred towards compassionate action. That is the lesson of the rich man. May we be a people known for empathy and mercy and love because we are a people tied to Jesus who extended us empathy and mercy and love. Now all this begins to take greater shape and focus as we begin to pull the thread of the story of Lazarus. Here's a guy that was homeless, naked, hungry, sick, and that's all we know about him. There, there's no additional contextual information that Jesus gives us in this story. There's nothing more, there's no more clues given. He, he doesn't tell us whether Lazarus was actually holy or pure of heart or a passionate pursuer of the things of God or a born-again Christian. or We don't even know how he fell into poverty to begin with. We don't know any of that. Jesus doesn't tell us any of those story cues. All we know is that Lazarus was suffocated by the circumstances surrounding his life. He is crushed by life, and yet God lifts him up. Something fascinating to me that came up out of the study of the passage this week, particularly as it pertains to the naming of the poor man. 
You, you go through uh, other parables of Jesus and you'll recognize pretty quickly that Jesus doesn't actually give formal names to his characters very often in these stories. In fact, the rich man has no name. He's just a certain rich man. That, that's all that Jesus gives him. But this poor man, Jesus gives a formal name. And in so doing, I believe it's a subtle storytelling cue for us that this man who, you know, in, in the case of the rich man and in the case of people who are listening to the story, someone might look at someone like that and say there is no value or worth there. But Jesus is subtly cueing us in that this man has a name. That means he has an identity. It means that he has worth and value and dignity in the kingdom of God. Couple that with the fact that Lazarus literally means that God has helped. And Jesus is using master storytelling here to give us a subtle cue into what he's trying to communicate to us, that God is willing to step in on behalf of those who have been crushed by this world. And the lesson of Lazarus's journey is that God throws the weight of his power behind those who are oppressed. God throws the weight of his power behind those who are oppressed. And this, friends, is a strong recurring theme that is found throughout the entire gospel of Luke. And if you don't believe me, we're going to go for a ride right now, and I want to just journey through it. We're going to go quick. You don't have to turn anywhere in your scriptures. Just follow along with me, because I want to take us all the way back to Luke chapter 1, where we find Mary's song. It's called the Magnificat. We, we will read this at Christmas quite a bit. And there's a little line in this beautiful song that says, He has exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things. Fast forward to Luke chapter 4, the very first public uh, uh, teaching appearance of Jesus. He stands before the synagogue and he's given a scroll to read. What is on the scroll? It's a reading from Isaiah 61. There is no accident that Jesus has this reading for his first public teaching moment because this frames everything that he came to do. Listen to what it says. The spirit of the Lord is upon me for he has appointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released and that the blind will see that the downtrodden will be freed from their oppressors. Still not convinced? Fast forward to Luke chapter 6 where Luke gives us his version of Jesus's Beatitudes. You know, we, we have a, a copy of that in Matthew as well. But here is Luke giving the Beatitudes, and this is what it says. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil. Still not convinced? Fast forward four more chapters to Luke chapter 10, and Jesus gives this amazing parable, fairly well known. You probably, probably are, are somewhat aware of it, uh, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, where Jesus, through again the gift of storytelling, illustrates the power of helping someone who had been crushed by a life, crushed by another person, in fact. And, and, and you see this theme of it's 
We are called, God wants to lift up those who have been broken, and we are called to help him do that. You, you keep going, and you're going to see more parables. In fact, just in this teaching series this summer, we've seen echoes of this theme come up, bouncing back and forth in kind of an echo chamber of, of certain themes that we've been dealing with in the parables. You can play, connect the dots from Luke 1 all the way through, and you see this theme through the Gospel of Luke, of God throwing his weight behind those who have been oppressed and downtrodden and crushed by life. And this parable just continues that echo. And it's beautiful. And here's what's really fascinating to me, because some people were like, why is this, you know, I, I, I get it, I, I see the theme, but why is it not happening? And you pray the prayer, how long, O Lord, how long? When will you set everything right? God's going to do these things in his own time, and he's going to do these things in, in different ways. But friends, listen, in the age of the church, this is so important for us to understand. In the age of the church, God more often than not chooses to do this type of work by gathering kingdom-minded people together who are courageous enough to step into the countless opportunities to alleviate suffering in our world. Now, here's the deal. And some of you might be scratching your head today, like, I've been kind of wrestling with God about what I'm supposed to be doing. You know, how do I, maybe there's a volunteer thing that you're looking at. What, what should I actually be investing my life in? And I want to make the answer easy for you. Scripturally speaking, if you do anything to alleviate the suffering of the human condition, if you do anything to help feed the hungry, hungry, clothe the naked, encourage the prisoners, if you do anything to help the weak and the marginalized, if you do anything to, to help free those who have been exploited and held against their will, if you do anything to help defend those who have been bullied, you can know that God will fondly and favorably look on your actions. It doesn't mean that this kind of thing is going to be be easy or that it's going to work out fast, but God will be pleased and he will equip you and empower you for this important but difficult work. Why? Because God cares deeply about those who are experiencing all forms of oppression and he wants to set us free. Amen. And this all kind of naturally then leads to a, a, a pretty practical so what moment. For us, And I, I want to give so what this, mor this morning in, in the form of a reflection question. But before we get to the question, I actually want to drop a statement that's written by the brother of Jesus, by James. I want to drop that on us. It's going to be on the screen. And I'm actually going to invite everybody here at Rock Island, people in Bettendorf, I want you to just read this with me. It's short and sweet. And let's just read this together as a community. It says this. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. It is so important as believers that we move from being hearers of the word to doers of the word. Now, listen, it's, it's great that you're all here today. I am so glad that we have this forum to connect 
and love each other and pray together and sing together and listen and learn and, and, and all of those things, that, that the benefits of gathering. But, but listen, if we gather here and then go forth from this place, we have to go forth as the sent people of God. We have to go forth looking to take tangible, compassionate action in this world. Because remember, if we come together and hear the word and then move from these walls and do nothing with that word, if we see a need and don't fill that need, we are in danger of drifting slowly into godless quietism. And remember, God decisively acted for you. Let's take that action that he gave to us, that love and that forgiveness and that mercy, and let's spin it and offer it back to a world that desperately needs that same mercy and compassion. And so my question, my reflection question to you is this, what inaction do you need to turn into action? Now, I don't intend for this to be a judgmental question. There's, there's many of you that are doing some really wonderful things. So don't, don't hear me say, none of you are doing any, you know, that please take this question as a next step type question for you to allow God to wrestle, you know, wrestle with decisions and, and habits and rhythms of your life and for you to hand over, maybe in a baby step type of way, a way that you can begin to live into this in a fuller way. Where can you move from inaction to action? Where can you begin to alleviate the suffering in this world? What's a small thing? It might not have to even do with like a, a big, big thing, like a, a citywide thing. What's something just in your neighborhood, just on your street that you can do to express love and mercy and compassion? You know, I was, uh, I was intrigued this week as I read through this passage several times. And it's, again, it's a mysterious passage. And, and you'll notice that the good majority of the passage, the good majority of the story is actually set after death, right? And, and Abraham has this, this kind of bitter dialogue with uh, the rich man. And, and it's, most of it's set kind of on the other side of eternity, uh, the, uh, the other side of death. And so some people might be like, you know, Josh, you didn't talk about eternity at all. Uh, what, what's up with that? And that, that's kind of where... A whole other sermon could be probably talk, I mean, you could talk through the eternity piece of this. But as I was sitting with the passage this week, and as I was reflecting on the journey and trajectory of the Gospel of Luke, as I was reflecting on other communicators that have already come forth with, with messages on, on passages that we've already looked at, you know, the, the Holy Spirit just seemed to really make it clear to me that what we really needed to focus on in this passage is the urgent message that Jesus is calling us to live compassionate lives in the here and now. And, and in so doing, friends, to live without regret. You notice one of the things uh, about the rich man in the second half of the passage, there is so much regret in his words. Send Send brother, you know, send, send help to my brothers. I don't want them to wind up where I'm at. So send, you know, send Lazarus to help alleviate my suffering. There is so much regret. It's just dripping with regret. And friends, I want you to know that you will never regret living with compassion and mercy and love as you walk in step with Jesus. And this is where I get so proud 
of Heritage Church. This is where I get so proud of being attached and connected to a church like ours where, where we just get to do so much great work across our cities. We, we partner with schools and, and jails and a food bank, and, and we have many other partnerships with, with freedom-based type ministries and, and with, with just great reconciliation-based programs and, and partnerships. I love the opportunities that we're stepping into in our cities. I love some of the opportunities that we're, we're stepping into worldwide. I love our partnership with Zoe and, and some of the things we're doing with that empowerment group. And we, remember, we have a prayer card, and you can pick one up in the children's check-in area. But I love all of these things that we get to do. And I, I want you to know that, that if you're looking for a way to go from inaction to action, there is never a shortage of opportunities here at Heritage, just, just with what we're doing alone, let alone all across our cities. There is never a shortage of ways that you can begin to make a compassionate action and make a tangible difference. The question I want you to wrestle with today is where can you begin to leverage your resources and strengths and blessings on behalf of another human being? The whole series on the parables has been such a blessing to me, personally speaking. And some of these themes are just echoing and bouncing and overlapping over and over. Jesus is calling us to live wisely yet urgently because time is short and there's just too much at stake for us to be sitting on the sidelines when Jesus returns. So my prayer for us today is that Jesus would find us as a church, as individuals, living purposeful lives, taking compassionate action as we seek to help usher in the kingdom of God to this world. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for who you are, for what you've done. We have so much to celebrate in you. And, and part of what we need to remember as we engage in a pretty hard teaching like this, the parable, is that you do not ask us to step into things that you were not <clears throat> willing to step into yourself. And so right, up, right away, before we go any further in, in this prayer, we give thanks to you for the cross. We give thanks for, for modeling mercy and love, compassionate action, all the way to your sacrifice for us. And so help us as we seek to engage how, how to move into compassionate action, help us to remember your action for us and let it be sort of the the fuel that burns hotly in our souls to help us step out with love and mercy, offering hope and compassion to this world. Lord, there's another group that I want to pray for specifically in this moment. It's very possible that there are a sprinkling of people in our spaces across the network who uh, resonate strongly with Lazarus's story. They feel crushed by life and they come into the space feeling hopeless sad alone and i pray god that you would minister to them in this moment through the reminder that you throw the full weight of your power for those who are brokenhearted and that your presence is with them and that you're going to lift them up 
And I just pray that they would trust you in that and find hope in you in this moment. Father, we love you so much. We thank you for your love for us. And we pray these things in the saving name of Jesus. Amen.